there, and welcome to Zero Half Hour, brought to you by Zero Hour Health and Zedic, a podcast where we talk with leaders from across the food service industry and beyond about the pressing issues of the day in 30 minutes or less. Our goal is to share ideas from diverse perspectives on a range of topics that matter to every business in the current and post-COVID eras. I'm Rosalind Stone, CEO of Zero Hour Health. Good morning. Uh, my guest today is Jonathan Mays um, from Winsight Media. And, and uh, John, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do. Sure. Um, I am the editor-in-chief of Restaurant Business. Uh, it is a uh, website that uh, uh, covers the restaurant industry uh, pretty broadly, um, covering it on a, uh, both independence and chains. Uh, we cover food, finance, um, operations, and, and things like that. Uh, my job uh, uh, outside of overseeing the publication is I am the um, I write about fast food and I write about finance. Uh, I also uh, have a regular blog that I keep up with pretty well called The Bottom Line. I have a newsletter that runs every week, um, and uh, and then I am also the host of the A Deeper Dive podcast. So keeps me pretty busy. It sure does. And in the interest of full disclosure, John and I started this conversation in Vegas. um, And, um, you know, we're having a really interesting conversation about where we were as an industry, where we were with COVID, where we were personally with all of this. And this, you know, podcast was just an opportunity for us to continue that interesting conversation. Um, Although it was better with a cocktail and not (laughs) coffee this morning, but... um, so, so tell me a bit about your, yourself and your, your family COVID situation. Where did you ride out COVID? What, you, you work from home normally, right? Yes, I've been working from home for like seven and a half years. So to me, nothing was very different, except that if there was more people around the house. <laughs> um, so I live in Minnesota. We, you know, my wife is a, um, an urban planner for a consulting firm. And so she, we've set up a makeshift, makeshift office for her. Um, we have two, I have two boys that are in middle school and in high school and, you know, they were pretty easy to deal with relatively. The middle schooler was tougher because he, you know, the, the, you know, one in high school is pretty self, you know, kind of, you know, a little is, you know, just obviously used to those sorts of things and, and had a relatively easy time through the pandemic, I guess, compared with most people. Uh, you know, my younger one was a little tougher because he's in middle school and middle schoolers, uh, you know, he was in sixth grade at the time. That was tough. That was tough for him. So sometimes we had to wake him up on a Zoom meeting. Um, you know, <laughs> so you get so busy, right? You know, I mean, you're, you know, you've got, you know, both my wife and I are very busy people. So, and you just get really kind of occupied and it gets kind of tough to try to monitor somebody else. Um you know, for the most part. So, uh, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't call it a lost year for him, but it was kind of tougher for him to get through that. That was, that was the one thing. Um, so, you know, it wasn't easy on kids period. I, I think that's, um, you know, I mean, I think that if we could go back and figuring out, finding a way to keep kids in school probably would have, I mean, I don't know how you do it with a pandemic, but that's, one of the things I think that you're seeing a lot of is people really resisting the idea of having to educate kids at home and things like that. Cause it's really, that's, that was very difficult. A lot of people. One of my closest friends is a high school teacher. And she says that her sophomores are having the most difficult time of the four grades of English that she teaches because they were in eighth grade 
when this started. They missed most of ninth grade. Now they're in 10th grade and they never learned how to function in a high school setting, how to have discussions, you know, how to be responsible for your own work and not have teachers Mm -hmm. that are, you know, overseeing you like they do in middle school. And she said, you know, hey, it's December this week and my sophomores are, you know, still haven't found their footing. Yeah. Yeah. She said the freshmen were really happy to be back, you know, be with other kids and have the first high school experience, the juniors and seniors. Well, they're off doing their junior and senior things, but that the sophomores are just, just struggling every day. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, my youngest, uh, my youngest not is, you know, this year we've been working with him on working harder with him on adapting to this, you know, to the fact that he's got you know, he has multiple classes now and not just one because he basically like, he just missed his entire sixth grade year, which is when you learn all of these things. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, we can definitely see that. So anyway, not to get caught up in the education thing. But. Yeah, but it's an important part of all of this because we're also learning how to educate employees and yeah. how to educate managers and having manager turnover and orienting new managers. I, I think you may have heard me speak about this before, but you know, we had an aha moment when, um, um, when restaurants were doing wellness checks every day, um, that managers never had sick calls. So you had a, a managers who had a year of experience who'd never actually experienced an employee calling out sick because they were handled in different ways and had to teach that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's, a, you know, we've got a, a lot to learn. Yeah. So back to Vegas and the restaurant finance conference. So it was a really interesting experience because, you know, I live in a COVID world. I live in a health, in a, in a health and wellness and, and sick calls and foodborne illness world. You know, so for me, COVID is an everyday thing and has been for the last 20 months. Got to Vegas and the message was, you know, very much, hey, for us as the restaurant, food service and hospitality industry, COVID is basically behind us, full steam ahead. What does the new world look like? You know, and now here we are. Um, and, um, you know, a couple of things have happened. Um, COVID counts started to rise a few days after Thanksgiving, after Halloween. Now we have Thanksgiving. Here at Zero Hour Health and Zedic, we had our highest count of um, employee callouts on Saturday that we've had in, in nine or 10 weeks. It, it mirrored uh, Labor Day weekend. And, um, you know, and now we have this new variant. Um, what are you hearing? Are you hearing the industry um, you know, sighing and saying, uh-oh, COVID isn't over? Or... You know, what, what do you hear in a near world? Um, you know, that's a really good question. On balance, the industry, I mean, if you look at the way and w- what you sensed that restaurant finance was, you know, the industry basically is through COVID. Um, I mean, there are still pockets of the industry that are still affected more than others. Um, but for the most part, you know, Industry sales are 10% above where they were pre-pandemic, you know, and and that's coming off a smaller base, by the way. So there are fewer restaurants and they're generating more sales. Um, You know, people have adapted to uh, sort of a post-pandemic reality. So they are going through the drive-through, they're going, getting takeout, they are, um, you know, they're ordering delivery um, and you know, and then they're, they're dining out more as an occasion type business. So they're not really going out uh, the way, you know, they did before the pandemic. We're not eating inside of restaurants as much as we did before. We are um, definitely. And you've seen casual dining basically recover. 
Um, uh, but it's it's just a bit more of an occasion business than it used to be. People are getting out, they're ordering takeout a lot more. Um, how do I say this? The industry largely shrugged off the Delta variant. And consumers kind of, I don't say, you wouldn't say they didn't shrug it off. They've adapted. They've changed how they use restaurants, but they still want to eat out at restaurants. And I, I live in Minnesota and we are, as you know, probably this is one of the hot nation's hotspots, if not the hotspot. I went to, I actually went to a, a, a holiday party a week ago, Saturday. Nobody was wearing a mask. Um, if you go into restaurants, nobody was wearing masks. Black Friday was as busy as anything else. Um, I, uh, I don't really get a sense that people are, are people haven't really changed their habits. And that's my sort of suspicion on where this is going forward. I do, it's hard for me to look going, looking at this and in, in this, this, this new Omicron variant and, and seeing any dramatic change unless it really, unless something, unless it's like, you know, less of vaccines have no no effectiveness on it, or something like that, or or something to that effect. It's hard for me to look forward and think that consumers are going to go back to where it was, where they were in two thousand. That's kind of where I sit. We don't really haven't really heard anything from restaurants since this since people started hearing about the new variant. But I'm just telling you, they basically, you know, the consumers in the industry have largely shrugged it off. The biggest concern they have is labor. Right. Right. Agree. Um, we did get a lot of concern calls, you know, over the last few days um, about, you know, what should we still be pushing vaccinations? The answer is yes. Um, again, we did see a, a serious uptick in the number of call outs of people who were symptomatic or had close contact exposures um, and were unvaccinated, you know, at their holiday tables. Um, but, um, you know, we're again, we're seeing illness numbers that, that, you know, it appears that we're in the fifth surge, you know, if we're not in it, we're we're at, you know, we're close to, close to in it. Um, but that now it's business as usual, that we know how to operate. We know how to exclude employees. We know how long to keep people out. Um, we know that, um, you know, some, some of the business have gotten very, very good at contact tracing and, and others have sort of shrugged that off also, but um, we do see it. It's, you know, this is the new normal and, right. you know, it's not going anywhere soon. There, we certainly know less about the new variant than others, we certainly know, know less about it than we than we know now about Delta. And there's some really concerning numbers about those those flights from South Africa to Amsterdam, the number of positives that they had, you know. But it also hard to tell. And I, I say this with the utmost of respect, with you 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 know being a leader in the media. But but how much does the how much did the media hype over the weekend and last week, um, you know, play into the level of of I don't say panic, but the level of concern. I'm not sure. Um, a, a, a pretty big role. I, you know, it's really, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess what happens is uh, from my perspective, and maybe this is my bias as a business journalist, but what happens is that the market reacts to something and then suddenly it's serious, right? So, you know, I, I, I mean, we don't, I'm trying to remember, I, I mean, I remember hearing a few days before Friday about this new variant in South Africa. There have been some things happening and maybe it's just, you know, and I, I can't remember exactly uh, when it was, but I, I did hear about it. And then on Friday, the market sold off. And when the market sells off, suddenly this is like, this becomes, 
it's it's affecting valuations and restaurants. This is sort of a big, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is sort of a big uh, temperature gauge on the state of things, just generally. And when it goes down, people are like, oh my gosh, this is serious now. I mean, if you remember when this first started happening, this became more serious the moment that Wall Street took notice of it. And I tend to think that Wall Street is very reactionary. It, it, I mean, and then, the, you know, it, it really is, it, it freaks out as a rule about like some things like that. And the fear of another variant that evades the vaccine and then requires more shutdowns really tends to, you know, cause this sort of reaction. I don't think it, it's, and maybe you, maybe you, I don't know if you disagree with me or not. It's impossible for me to imagine us going back to more shutdowns, even oh, on a local basis. It's just not going to happen. We've got a vaccine. And what I know, um, you know, almost certainly that carries at least some effectiveness against severe disease, um, especially if you've had a booster shot, which is I had a booster shot. I feel perfectly comfortable going out because it's no more risk for me to do anything than if I was to drive down the highway, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. So, you know, um, we have a variant, we have treatments coming forward. Um, you know, a lot of the economy does know how to deal with this. Like to your point, we've learned over the past two years how to deal with this virus. Um, we do know that we can put masks on. And I think if you do really start kind of enforcing it, people will start wearing masks. Um, if you put masks on, if you do, uh, you know, if, if more people get vaccinated, which is the biggest problem, it's the biggest problem in the restaurant industry right now, if you ask me, is the fact that not nearly enough workers are vaccinated. Uh, so it's impossible for me to go. So I guess the point is that what happens when the market reacts and, and then the media does definitely react, does have this overreaction tendency. It's like, I remember seeing people, like the vast majority of people on this planet never heard of uh, the Omicron variant before Friday. Friday is when it happened. And I remember, and I was up super early on Black Friday, not necessarily because I was going up shopping, but because I was just up. And I remember reading stories early about about like people shopping despite new variant. Well, nobody had heard of the new variant. They're certainly not going to change their habits as a result of it. It just tends to, you know, they see what's happening. They see the reaction, they see this news and then they just sort of jump all over it. And then, and then this happens on many, many occasions. And I, I, that's sort of where I see that's, that's sort of what's happened. I mean, I think things, you know, and then it takes a while and maybe people calm down a little bit. And I think maybe that's happening right now, but man, yeah, Friday was nuts. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that vaccines work and they're going to work for this variant and other variants, or they're going to modify them. They already say it's only going to take them a hundred days to modify the vaccine. We know that masks work. And I think that the masking, the, the issues with masking messaging, you know, in this country were, you know, really contributory to you know, how bad COVID got, you know, if we had masked up, you know, maybe we could have kept schools open. Maybe we could have kept restaurants open. Maybe we could have done other things. And, and the, the wide variability, I live in New York. New York is very masked. Unlike Minnesota, New York is very masked. I live next door to Connecticut. Connecticut is unmasked. Um, well, you know, heck, there's a lot of people like me that go back and forth across the state line, you know, four times a day. 
So, so I think we're going to see um, that between vaccines, masking, and these new medications, that that's how we, you know, get to the next phase and get this mm -hmm. to be endemic. Um, some of the industry is still masked, some is not. You know, one of the one of the, the benefits um, that has been the case is that vaccinated employees um, could take off their masks, and um, and we may lose that benefit. I did have one comment though about the percentage of the industry that that is vaxxed. We have not done a great job um, in collecting vaccination information from employees or incentivizing them or whatever we need to do, winning their trust for them to give us their vaccine cards. But I will tell you that over this past week and in this past week, when an employee was exposed and we did not have a vaccination record on file for them in our system, we often found out they were vaccinated, they uploaded their card and we could allow them to work. So I don't think that the industry numbers are as low as we think they are. Mm -hmm. um, we just need to do a better job of communication and getting that information from employees and having them understand why it is we need them to get vaccinated and share that information with us, regardless of what happens with the OSHA ETS. Yeah. So yeah. I want to change, I want to shift gears for a second. So mm -hmm. you've been doing this for a while. I the have. industry has evolved. What have been the biggest, biggest changes that you've seen that, that have impacted restaurants, food service, hospitality over over your tenure? Oh, well, I mean, the biggest one, I think, and probably by a long shot, is the influx of technology into the industry. I don't think, and obviously, it probably makes sense if you think about it for more than a minute. Um, you know, historically, I mean, I'd say probably for most of my career, the industry was sort of a Luddite, a collective Luddite. I mean, it hadn't, it really resisted technology to a great degree. And part of it is because technology, there's a there's an upfront cost to technology. It's very expensive to open a restaurant on balance compared with a lot of other businesses. And, you know, so restaurants just don't want that additional cost onto it unless they see a real benefit. And labor was always cheap, right? So you could get the, you could always get cheap labor. And so the re industry relied heavily on cheap labor for a very long time. And they've now gotten religion on this and they've realized they absolutely have to get technology into the business. You've seen a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uh, technology companies have after, you know, you know, upending retail and hotels and leisure and all these other sectors are now eyeing restaurants as a big, big area for, for change and disruption and innovation. And so, and they've started going, um, going in on this. Um, you've seen, you know, a lot of large companies de develop over the past several years, um, in part to uh, pay for this technology. So you've had, you know, the creation of Inspire Brands now, which owns Arby's and Buffalo Wild Wings and Duncan and a bunch of other companies. And one of the reasons that company was created was to be able to pay for all of this technology because it's going to be disrupting the industry to a certain degree. Um, Restaurant Brands International was created, and and not necessarily because of that, but but in part because, you know, you know, economies of scale are definitely coming in the industry, so you're getting this massive consolidation wave. In part because of of technology, so technology is just fundamentally changing the way people interact, and we've seen this during the pandemic because it went, you know, this whole trend went, you know, on, you know, uh, you know, went on light speed. I remember talking with um, Hudson Reilly, who is um, sort of, who is a, 
kind of the research guy over at the National Restaurant Association. And this was like, I think in 2018. And I think I I think it was Sally the salad robot. I don't know if you've seen this. This is a salad making robot. And it was at the National Restaurant Show. And everybody's like, oh, look, robots are coming. Right. And Hudson was like, yeah, I remember about like he was talking about in the um, early 2000s. And when he had heard of when when they saw fry making robot first appear back then, robots have been around. Automation has been around for a long time. It's been around in a lot of other sectors for a long time. I mean, heck, we've been making cars using robots, I don't know, for decades. None of that stuff is new. And only now we are now starting to see, for instance, robot waiters at um, at, into, at local restaurants. You, you can now, if you go to certain places in Texas and places like that, you can see robot waiters. If you go to a couple of different white castles in the country, you can see um, uh, uh, fry making robots. If you go to Las Vegas, there's a, a robot there that'll make you a um, make you an, uh, an alcoholic beverage. You're starting to see robots take place. You're starting to see automated um, artificial intelligence is taking a real big role in, in a lot of real big change. That is probably the biggest change in the industry you've seen going forward. And it's going to make, I think, long-term the industry more efficient. So I think in general, it's, a po- it's definitely a positive because this industry really does need to get more efficient. We're seeing the problems today with the industry's overall inefficiency on a labor front, um, you know, with, you know, early closures at restaurants, some restaurants closing wholesale service lines, even closing altogether uh, because of the labor shortage. So this technology that we're starting this, that we're definitely seeing, and it's still only the beginning, um, is is definitely a good thing. So, but that yeah, that's the biggest change by far in this industry since I started covering it. Absolutely, I would I would agree with you. And um, w- from where we sit, where we deal with very small restaurants, you know, a, a single location mom and pop up through you know all the you know many of the big boys, the the wide variation between adoption of technology and. Um, IT support and, and systems across the industry is is mind-boggling. Um, you know, vaccination tracking, you know, is is necessary at this point, and the ease with which one um, you know one organization can handle it versus another is is you know of similar size or similar similar age as a as a business is really quite um, quite startling. Um, and we came from you know I, I come from a healthcare background. Um, where we always said that um, healthcare was often 10 years behind the rest of technology. I think that the restaurant industry in particular was behind healthcare in, in adoption of new technologies. But I've been wowed by some of the th- things I've seen and heard. And, and um, I don't know if you listen to our podcast with Mark Hinson from, from Bar Taco, but some of the things mm-hmm. they've done and, and, and restaurant groups of their size, you know, just make me um, you know, have me in awe of the way that the industry has evolved and adapted and, and reinvented itself over the course of the last several years and certainly over the course of, of COVID. Oh, yeah. Um, shifting gears yet again. So, so um, I want to talk about foodborne illness a little bit because it's been a very interesting couple of weeks. Um, you know, before COVID, most of our clients called us about norovirus and hepatitis A and, and salmonella and shigella and those kinds of things. And then it really disappeared, really, truly disappeared for a year in COVID. Um, but now it's back and back in kind of an ugly way. We have these two enormous hepatitis A situations, one impacting Starbucks. And I, I never like to call anybody out, you know, but it's been very, very public. 
Um, and then there's a hepatitis A in Roanoke, Virginia that um, has um, 55 guests or more sick and several deaths and a, a liver transplant, things we didn't hear about. We also have a tremendous amount of noise right now about E. coli. Um, you know that before COVID, a foodborne illness outbreak could destroy a restaurant or could destroy a business. Um, we've learned a lot about communication and crisis communication through COVID. What are your takeaways as a communication professional on foodborne illness outbreaks, communication about them, where, you know, where, we're, where we're going with all of this? Oh, well, that's a really good question. Um, so, you know, I guess from a, from a communications and a public relations standpoint, to me, it's always best to acknowledge the problem early. Agree. You have to acknowledge your problem early in the process. You need to acknowledge the problem. You need to um, make your consumers feel safe about eating there again. And, um, and you, you have to do things differently than you had done them before. You have to go into crisis mode. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, plenty of restaurant chains have, I mean, a lot of restaurant chains have, you know, managed to get through those problems very quickly um, and, uh, and, and, and do so in a way that doesn't damage them to any real great degree. I mean, I think, um, you know, Taco Bell has, has uh, done it very well on a multiple occasions when they've had issues like this coming up, um, you know, and, and, and companies like that. I mean, Jack in the Box is a perfect example. Um, you know, I mean, the, the reaction to what happened with Chipotle, and this is a different era than the 90s, um, you know, was much more severe than what happened to Jack in the Box. Jack in the Box problems in the 90s killed people. Um, but, you know, you just, you have to, you have to speak about it. You have to um, be contrite and, and say, hey, look, mistakes are made. We're going to fix it. Um, and this is how we're going to do it. And um, you know, and you have to keep repeating the message. You can't do it just once and then ignore it. We tell clients there's sort of three rules. You know, one is um, you have to do more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. um, you have to do the next right thing, whatever that may be, whatever that may cost. And you have to be honest with everyone, your employees, your guests, the public, the regulatory agencies. If you follow those three things, you know, do the next right thing, do more than anyone else and be honest with everyone, you can get through any situation. And we have taken clients through many, many situations. And we've taken clients through situations that were in fact much larger than what Chipotle experienced. Um, and, um, and you didn't necessarily hear about them. So there are other factors that lead to what you, what you hear about and why, and one of them are stock prices and, and media coverage and, and the like. I wanna circle back to the staffing as the last thing we talk about. Um, you know, every industry is, you know, is, talking about their, their staffing woes. And yet there are some restaurant and hospitality groups that don't really have a significant staffing issues. Where do you think we're going with this? Is there an end? Oh yeah, I think that there's an end. I mean, I think that there's a lot of, I mean, look, I mean, the, the labor shortage has, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of factors that play a role in the labor shortage. It's, it's, you know, and that's what people need to remember. I mean, much of people, much of the industry basically felt, well, it's, it's all this stimulus that's causing the problem. That's not even remotely true. And we've clearly learned that since then. Um, 
you know, we've had uh, the probably the biggest is a lack of immigration. So if we can get, you know, you know, immigration actually needs to get better if the industry is going to be able to get through this labor shortage is probably the best thing that can be done in the short term. Um, you know, we've had this long term uh, decline in the number of kids, uh, 16 to 18 year olds that work inside uh, that work um, uh, over the course of the year. Um, you know, that, that is also a factor. And then obviously you have the coronavirus and people doing major life changes and, um, you know, and the stimulus, um, has enabled them to do things differently than they did before. Uh, you have this entire, um, economy of being of self-sufficient self-employment. So, uh, an example I use, like, you know, historically, as a journalist, I've always had to work for a publication, some sort of company that would pay me to write for them. Today, I can leave my job tomorrow and start my own newsletter. Now, I'm not I'm not going to do that. But I mean, my point is, you could, you know, people have options today that they never had before. I can go and work at I can go be an Uber driver if that's what I wanted to do. I can, I can, um, you know, I, I can, I can buy and sell things on the internet and probably make, and if you're good enough at it, you can make a pretty good living. You could, I mean, kids make money, a lot of money selling shoes for crying out loud. There's this entire economy that is based on this idea of, of being self-sufficient. And, you know, and so people today, workers today do not have to, they don't have to put up with some of the stuff that maybe they've had to put up with in the past. You know, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have to put up with, um, you know, uh, being forced to, you know, not knowing when their shift is going to be until the night before they have to go to work. They don't have to put up with low wages and super hard work. They don't have to put up with some of the things that they had to put up with. And that's just a reality that this industry is going to have to deal with. The good news really in that is that the industry is dealing with it. And I do think over the long term, and I've said this before many times, I think the industry is going to be better for it. Um, down the line, it's going to be more efficient. Um, uh, you know, it is. You know, your 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 workers will stay longer because they'll, um, you know, you know, they'll be working in an environment that um, maybe you know that pays them more, that probably respects their time a little bit more. That um, you know, you know, there's more technology today that's taking away some of the ancillary things that they used to have to do, like cleaning shake machines, for instance. Um, you know, when I worked at McDonald's many, many moons ago, I had to, you know, you had to clean the shake machine all the time. You had to clean the ice cream machine all the time. You had to clean all these other things. And if they find more technology to get rid of some of this stuff, that's fundamentally a good thing. And it makes the job a lot easier and better to stick around. I mean, I think it's just going to look kind of ugly for a bit, um, you know, as the industry adopts this. But I think it's long term, it's it's better. Um uh, you know, for the industry that it's going through this and it's in it's sort of learning and adapting. So, yeah, I do think that there's an end. I don't think it's going to be a clean, easy end. It's just going to gradually happen over time. Um, much like, I guess the pandemic, it's not going to just be some clear end. It's just going to be, you know, we're just going to learn to live with it. Like we sort of are right now. So, you know, I, I think it's going to re require a lot of, you know, the, the industries are going to have to adapt and, uh, and, um, and figure things out. And I think they will, um, you know, they've, 
adapted pretty well to a lot of challenges already. And I, I there's no reason why they can't fix this, but it's just going to look ugly. On that note, thanks so much for your time today and um, look forward to talking to you again soon. Super. Thank you for having me on. Always Take appreciate care. it. Thanks. That's our show for today. Thanks again for taking the time to join us. Stay tuned for our next episode in your inboxes and on your podcast app of choice soon. As always, if you have any topics or questions you'd like us to cover or have a guest we should chat with, don't hesitate to reach out to us at support at zerohourhealth.com. To learn more about us and subscribe to our twice-weekly executive summary, check out zerohourhealth.com. Thanks again.